You're listening to Healthy Discussions, a podcast supported by the Healthcare Leadership Academy, where we have conversations exploring big ideas in healthcare with our guests. I'm Zach Hassan, a junior doctor from Scotland. If you're interested in how we can make the health system better, then this is the podcast for you. On today's podcast, I'm talking with Carrie Lunan about whether the NHS needs to be more realistic. She's a GP and chair of the Deep End Group, made up of the 100 GP practices in Scotland's most deprived areas. We discuss the pressure on frontline services, how to respond to rising public expectations, and to what extent doctors should advocate on health inequalities for their patients. I hope you enjoy. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Zach. Good to be here. So, um, working with health inequalities has always been a bit of an attraction for you, hasn't it? I'm just wondering if you can tell us a bit about how that started for you and what made you want to get uh, interested in that. Yeah, thank you, Zach. Good question. Um, It wasn't something that was particularly highlighted during undergraduate years, Um, I was aware of it, but I don't think I kind of developed my interest and passion around it until I started uh, my GP training and then working as a GP. And I haven't always worked um, in very deprived settings, although I have largely worked in very deprived settings. I guess I became quite aware early on working as a GP that um, I felt the NHS needed to be at its best where it is needed the most in terms of being able to mitigate um, health inequalities for those people who really struggle to use the NHS and access healthcare, and I became interested in in working in more deprived areas because I think that general practice has a really key role to play because it's out in communities and um, and you know kind of offering long term context care. So I moved from a, a less deprived area to the homeless practice. Um, in Edinburgh, where I worked for five years from, I think it was 2010 to 2015, which was a fantastic and very humbling experience, to be honest, working there. Um, And then I moved to Craig Miller practice, also in Edinburgh, also a deprived area. And I guess became very interested in the other roles that I've done along the way, working um, within the RCGP as its chair, also sitting on its ethics committee, um, also leading on work around the interface and patient engagement about the role of, of organisations like the college and also the role of professionals like GPs to, to do this work. So it's it's become, I guess, my a, a kind of very personal and, and professional um, area of interest for me. And I, I feel very passionately about it and can't imagine doing any other kind of work now. And how is practicing medicine at the deep end different to practicing medicine elsewhere? So I think there are obviously core elements of the job that are the same no matter where you work Um, and I guess I'm largely going to reflect on working as a GP because that's what I do that's my specialist area Um, but the nature of how that medicine is delivered can feel quite different if you're working in an area that is very highly socially deprived compared to working in an area that is very affluent, for example. Um, What we often find as as GPs working in in the deep end or in more socially deprived areas is that consultations are often more complex and more intense. Um, They are often kind of infused with social complexity and poverty and the effects of poverty that mean that that consultations are rarely straightforward um, and where you're trained you know in medical school and through GP training to take a take a story from a patient maybe do some tests maybe make a diagnosis offer some treatment that feels like um, it's it's not often possible in that very simplistic way in more deprived areas and there are lots of factors that 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 kind of that contribute to that. Some of it is that many of our patients struggle with literacy, um, functional literacy in terms of being able to read and write. Some struggle with health literacy and being able to understand information around around healthcare um, and health conditions. Often our patients don't have English as a first language, so we have translation challenges that, that come into consultations. 
Um, and often the advice that we give is not always possible for people to follow because they maybe don't have the social networks that allow that. They maybe don't have the financial opportunities to take that up. Um, our patients are more likely to miss appointments in secondary care if we refer them on because they struggle often with the complex system that is the NHS or having transport to appointments or having you know, a lifestyle that allows them to be able to plan ahead and make appointments when things can often feel quite uncertain and unpredictable uh, with more um, chaotic lives. And I think as well, we can never underestimate the impact that poverty can just have on people's day to day life. Um, and, you know, if you're if you're struggling to make ends meet um, to get enough food on the table, to pay bills, to keep your house warm, then healthcare needs can fall quite far down that list of priorities. Um, and so it's it's rarely a straightforward way of delivering medicine in a in a deep end practice compared to to other mm -hmm. other practices, which I recognise have different challenges, of course. But that's from my own experience of what's been different from moving into those kind of areas. Mm -hmm. Um, just from my, you know, my own experience, uh, being in, in Craig Miller, you know, that community aspect of being in general practice, you know, being part of the community like that, you kind of see the issues that, that people have and you kind of, that makes you reflect on the causes of them a lot more. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I wondered what kind of lessons you've learned about how we fix things like social inequality or health inequality or uh you know poverty because you know if you're working as a gp uh in this area you know you, you must you know i can sense that there's something you feel you can do about it maybe something we can all do about it yeah i think that's i think that's a really important question and i think you're right when you start to work in those areas um, and when you have placements as a student or as a, as a trainee in those areas, there's a lot of learning that goes on that isn't necessarily covered in formal training around, you know, what drives um, the differences in health outcomes from people living in deprived areas compared to living in affluent areas. Um, and in terms of the impact that healthcare can have on addressing health inequalities, if you take healthcare in its purest form, it's probably quite a small overall impact. If we were just thinking about what can we do within healthcare to change that, because so much of what drives poor health is related to um, low incomes or insecure employment or insecure housing um, or poor educational attainment um, or the welfare system. There's so many other things that um, the impact on people's health. But I think for me, um, the role of clinicians, both at a kind of patient level on a one-to-one -one relationship with patients or within communities, underestimate the influence that they can have as advocates for their patients. Um, and so I think that, you know, we, we, you know, as GPs can sometimes feel quite overwhelmed by systems and quite tired and feel like, what we're doing isn't making a difference, particularly when things are, are stressful, like, for example, during the last year with COVID. Um, but I yeah, think you, you preempted uh, my next question do, there. Yeah. You know, when we, when we do um, when we do take more of a proactive advocacy role, it's incredibly rewarding and it's really valued by patients. And we've you know, we've we probably don't do that as much as we could because we maybe don't know how to do that as much as we could. And so just thinking about an example within Craig Miller for there you know we have a number of voluntary sector and third sector agencies that we work really closely with out in the community and that we would really struggle to manage um, our daily work if we didn't have access to them and there was a, a voluntary agency next door to the practice that offered help with benefits with with claims with volunteering with writing CVs applying for jobs and just general support and their funding became fragile and they were at risk of losing the service which impacted on lots of our patients so we thought about some practical ways that we could advocate such as writing template letters for MSPs or getting a petition signed or writing an article for the local newspaper and what that did was both I think let our patients know that we really cared about what was happening to them and wanted to work with them to try and find a solution also helped our colleagues in the third sector know that we really cared about them and we were 
you know, we were keen to use our circles of influence that they maybe didn't have uh, to try and raise awareness of their plight. Mm -hmm. And it also gave us good experience and practical things that you can do within the practice to, to be an advocate for patients. So that was a powerful learning thing for me. And I've shared that quite widely with other colleagues, just because I think people want examples of what they can do, because otherwise you can feel mm -hmm. a bit overwhelmed and a bit hopeless within a system that feels quite broken. Then, of course, if you do more national leadership roles or local leadership roles, you have influence there too and other opportunities. Yeah, cause that's, that's kind of an inspirational story, actually, because I suppose the way that I think, well, the other option would have been to say, well, that's, you know, it's nothing to do with us that the charity has been defunded, like we're just the, the GPs. So, and I think maybe a lot of people kind of expect um, that. So, you know, I think it's heartening to hear people taking on you know you know responsibility that's kind of outside strictly you know what is healthcare, and you know you spoke a little bit about your the leadership roles that you've had kind of at, at a bigger scale i'm kind of wondering what lessons have you learned from that about the the levers that can be you know pulled to solve some of these health inequalities is it something that happens that has to happen on a larger scale is it something that happens with you know all of the gps in a local area you know what what's the right level of kind of scale that to, to be addressing these problems on so i think there's probably multiple levels but i think underpinning um any significant change around this needs to be a change at a national level so it needs to be viewed as a national priority to improve the health outcomes of the people who struggle the most and have the poorest outcomes. And that needs to underpin all policy development so that every single policy that is developed has a sense check to say, will this worsen or will this improve health inequality? Um, and, you know, and consider that specifically as we develop policy, and particularly as we do things like recover the NHS after a pandemic. How do we make sure that the new normal is better than the old normal was for many, many people? And I think there is a lot of interest in that and it's not an easy thing to fix. But I think if there is a, a, a will to do that and a, a desire to bring people around the table to have those quite difficult discussions, then that is really important. But I also think it's important that you have people within each health board, within each local authority area, maybe within each practice, who are also enabled to take a lead on health inequalities within their own workplace within their own health board area so that you know you have the you have the kind of authority the permission giving and the and the kind of what good looks like at framework from the top and then that can mm. be flexed at local level um, according to what the needs of your local population are but I would love to see for example health equity champions in every health board and I'd love to see practices enabled to have a health and equity lead within their practice. It doesn't have to be a GP. It could be anyone within the team who has a passion to do that. But their role would be thinking specifically about how do we offer our services? Is there anything we could do better that would address health inequality? Um, do we know what's happening out in our communities? How do we engage with our communities and know what is going on out there that we might be able to lobby for or influence or advocate on behalf of? So I think there are lots of different ways that you can, that you can address that. Um, and then, of course, policy is very important. If you design and write policy that enables those things to happen, uh, then that makes a huge difference. And it's no longer just a kind of talking shop where everyone agrees this is important, but we don't have any firm actions around it. Yeah. And maybe that's a good point to sort of introduce the, the, the sort of main question for this episode, which is, could the N well, does the NHS need to be more realistic about what it can do? And the reason I'm posing that question is that maybe there's a sense that what the NHS is trying to do is is unrealistic at the moment or or not working. Uh, you know, is, is that is that your sense of things as as a frontline GP? So I think probably the f the first thing I would want to say, just because of where we are right at the moment in history, is that I think the NHS has been pretty phenomenal over the last year. <laughs> um, it has, you know, it has been amazing in terms of the resilience the, the coming together the keeping going during during a pandemic and you know an all hands on deck approach so i feel very very proud to have worked 
in the NHS during 2020. And I'm sure we will look back for decades to come and, and analyse the, the pandemic of, of, of last year and this year. But I think taking it more widely, um, you know, when the NHS was set up in 1948, um, it was, of course, after the Second World War. And there was this massive collective desire to to care for the most vulnerable and to raise the bar for the most vulnerable people who had the least um, and to make care free at the point of access um, and to give everyone a kind of better baseline quality of health, which it has achieved. But 72 years later, almost, um, 73 years later, um, of course, we have an NHS that is struggling um, to do what it wants to do and what it is expected to do. Um, and there's lots of complex reasons for that. We've got, you know, a population that's living for longer, far longer. So it's a victim of its own success. Um, and people that are living for longer with uh, with longer, with more long-term health conditions. Uh, we've also got, you know, massively increased expectations around what the NHS should be providing. We've got widening health inequalities. We've got um, you know, a, a workforce that works at its absolute capacity most of the time. Um, and so I think, you know, if we want to see an NHS that feels sustainable, that, you know, that, that caters for the people that need it the, the very most, we probably need to have some quite difficult conversations with the public who pay for it because it's publicly funded, tax funded NHS, about what do we think are the priority areas for the NHS? And that conversation needs to be had I think ideally in a cross-party format so that it's not a political conversation, it's not a point-scoring conversation about, mm. you know, which seems most attractive to win the next election. It's cross-party. It's in everyone's interest for the NHS to be working well and not to be going through big changes every two or three years. And that conversation needs to be held jointly with people working within health and social care um, so that we can engage with the public around these difficult decisions about what does a sustainable NHS look like, because otherwise it will start to fail, and it has, you know, started to fail in some elements. So I, I think a long answer to your question: the NHS um, needs to be realistic and sustainable if it's going to survive for the next seventy-three years. I think that 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 was a really interesting answer because you kind of talked about a lot of the reasons why it's. Um, not sustainable and you know things that are relevant to kind of me working as a junior doctor that kind of high human cost and the bureaucracy you know you want to be doing the best that you can for every patient but you know the the computer system uh, you know is down so you know and and that t- means everything takes longer so you see fewer patients and there's more stress and um i'm just kind of you know wondering you, you kind of asked the the, the question well, what does a sustainable NHS look like? And uh, I want to put that question back at you. What what does it look like? I think we probably have to have some difficult conversations about whether we continue all the things that the NHS is currently expected to do or whether some things have to pause or stop. And that is a conversation that needs to be had with the public because they're not easy decisions to make. I know that over the years, decisions around those kind of things have been taken around whether or not um you know aesthetic surgery is continued on the NHS mm-hmm. or operations are done without any clear clinical need for them to be done so there have been attempts to try and um make sure that we are offering NHS care on a strong evidence base um and you know around the greatest good for the greatest number sort of utilitarian ethics if you like um mm-hmm. But I think, I think, and I would say this, I guess, because I'm a GP, but I think that there needs to be a stronger emphasis on prevention and population health and shared decision making, realistic medicine um, and earlier decision making and care planning conversations about what people do and don't want based on their personal preferences and what matters to them. And for me, those conversations are ideally placed far earlier on in the patient journey Um, out in the community before they reach secondary care, before they're admitted to a hospital bed, before they're, you know, in in a sort of palliative care situation. I think we need to, as a society, get more comfortable about having those conversations and we need to enable and empower 
um, the you know the clinicians working out in communities to have those conversations too. Mm-hmm. And those conversations take time and they take training um, and they take trust um, and they take continuity. And so I think that you know to to have a more sustainable NHS, we have to have a, a stronger, more resilient, more robust, better funded, bigger workforce primary care segment of the NHS and less of a focus mm-hmm. on hospital-based services. Hospital-based services are crucial to the people that really need them, but I think we need mm-hmm. to have much more focus on community-based um, healthcare if we want to have a more sustainable NHS overall, because those conversations around um, whether or not it's appropriate to investigate, to refer, um, how far people want treatment to go, um, you know, whether the the symptoms that someone is presenting with are more likely to be related to something that happened to them a few years ago that you discussed with them as a GP and you know are probably not concerning, but to someone who doesn't know them, sound like they might be concerning. Um, those discussions are are just easier and safer to have out in primary care. So that's what I, my argument would be is move, shift it all upstream, make it more preventative, more based on population health, closer working with public health. We've learned that during the pandemic as well. I think there is some evidence for that argument as well that, you know, more GPs means more things are kind of caught earlier when they're relatively cheap to treat rather than waiting until a crisis and someone's in hospital and and the costs that are associated with that. I was, you know, when I was researching for this episode, I found a paper that said that, you know, there's there's a 0.6 correlation between weaker primary care, which they sort of measured as kind of GPs per head of population and higher costs. So like the more GPs you had, the cheaper it was to deliver health care. I'm just kind of wondering, you know, are, th- are there other reasons behind that as well, apart, you know, apart from just, um, you know, is the reason for that, that, that it's the preventative care argument or is there other things going on there as well? Well, I think that um, if you have a, a strong primary care system and you have adequate numbers of GPs with enough time to have these conversations with patients and you're having those conversations based on relationships of trust where people feel confident in coming forward earlier with symptoms that are worrying them, um, or you have GPs who are able to persuade patients to engage in screening programmes where they might not necessarily have done that because we know, for example, screening programme uptake is, is much lower in deprived areas, so they tend to present later on with more advanced cancer diagnoses. So I think there is something about the nature of the relationship that is built over time, over lots and lots of encounters, and often you're not just looking after one person, you're looking after their family, and it's a multi-generational type of relationship as well. So I think there's something about the nature of the relationship and the value of time um, that allows us to have a series of conversations and also the nature of our training as generalists, which, you know, Mm -hmm. I think um, allows us to consider um, how we make diagnoses in a slightly different way because we do have the value of time and we have the value of previous knowledge of patients. Um, So it's it's far easier for us in many ways to manage some of the uncertainty uh, that can come with um, a patient coming in for the first time with lots and lots of different symptoms that are difficult to unpick and know which ones are the ones that we need to worry about. But we have um, the benefit of being able to see them back, to do a bit of reading, to maybe some, do some investigations, speak to colleagues in secondary care. But if that same person was to present to A&E, or to present to the out-of-hours service where there's no prior knowledge of what their history is and there's no real ability to see them back, then automatically that care becomes more expensive and it has to be more risk-averse because they don't have the luxury of being able to say, let's see how you go over the next few days and we can do some tests if it doesn't improve. So I think it's something about the nature of the relationship, the training that we have, plus also um, the preventative aspects of being able to catch somebody earlier on. 
As, as a junior doctor that's kind of uh, pitched up uh, out of for an out-of-hour shift and, you know, has had to deal with a crisis with a patient I don't know and a ward that I don't usually work on, it's such a relief even, you know, when the med reg is like, oh, no, I, like, I've seen this patient earlier today, you know, so, you know, even that's enough continuity to to make a big difference. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I, I can see that that there's definitely you know, that's, that's a convincing argument to me about, you know, the continuity that you get in, you know, when you're a GP um, out in community. Um, something else I wanted to ask about was, you know, whether there, you know, you talked about this conversation with the public and, you know, I wonder if there's like a, a tension now between, you know, a healthcare system that's based on, on the, on demand and patients, you know, wanting to be seen for what they want to be seen for. And then a healthcare system, which is actually based on needs, um, sort of, you no, know, you don't need a referral. You don't need that MRI scan or, um, uh, but what you do need is, you know, these other kind of, uh, social interventions or healthcare interventions that you might not want to take. I'm wondering that that's, that must be something that you're, that, that you see kind of every day in a, in a small way. Where's the right balance between those things? So we do, you're right. We see it every single day and we have those conversations every single day. Um, and it's a difficult um, balance to get right. So, you know, I, I guess ideally the NHS should be, it should be based on need and not on demand because that also drives sustainability. Um, but demand and need can sometimes overlap quite a lot and feel quite grey. Um, and I suppose some of the difficulty for us as GPs is that we feel that kind of demands or expectations can be driven by, by circumstances completely out with our control. It can be driven by things that are reported in the media, by adverts for certain types of medication, by you know politicians' um, expectations of what they would like the NHS to be able to do. Um, and so we're kind of left trying to have that difficult conversation about, yeah, that would be nice if we could do that for everyone. But here's the thing, we can't. Um, and we've got to follow guidelines. We've got to you know, go with the evidence base. We've got to target our limited resource. And I expect that doesn't make you too popular. And it doesn't make you popular. So it's a difficult conversation to have if you want to maintain relationships sometimes. And I think there's all, also this separate rub so you've got the rub between the needs versus demand aspects. And then you've also got the rub between the access versus continuity aspect, which is for some people just being able to have a conversation with anyone. It doesn't matter who now, right now, because that is convenient and that fits in with the, their model of how they live their life. And and, um, and, and, it's, and it's driven by convenience and access versus um, the benefits of continuity where you have conversations with someone that you know but you might need to wait a day or two until that person is back and available to speak to you um, and so there's this constant kind of rub between trying to maintain access particularly where it's a more urgent problem and access is important but also trying to promote continuity because we know that continuity improves health outcomes and reduces mortality mm. so it's really important to have continuity but it's harder to make that argument to younger fitter people who don't need continuity as much because it's more important for them to have access and convenient um, conversations. Continuity is really important for older people, people with long-term conditions, people with mental health issues, um, but it can sometimes feel quite hard to, even as a, a practice, as a service, design your system mm -hmm. so that you manage both and you offer access, but you also try and promote continuity. I can kind of see that the, the work of a GP is, uh, you know, juggling all of these things and trying to tailor them for the, the individual patient in front of you is really hard job. And um, I, I kind of, um, I wanted to ask, you know, if this is a, a larger conversation we need to be having with the public or that, you know, that the public need to have, you know, is that a hard sell if, uh, you know, you're saying, well, some aspect of a more realistic healthcare system that, you know, does things more efficiently is you're going to have to maybe accept that you're not going to have everything on the day uh, when you want it, you know, and, and even if we could do that, that might not be desirable. How do you make people sort of not feel pawned off having that conversation? 
because you know th- that's that's something else that that people, especially people my age, <laughs> uh, can feel. They're not taking me seriously. This kind yeah. of stuff. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. And that would be a really bad outcome if people came away thinking I wasn't taken seriously. That is really damaging and not not good at all. So I think um, I think that that public engagement and public discussion around this is really important to to get right because we need to. And it's difficult because being able to have meaningful public engagement so that you have representative, um, you know, people from the population that you're caring for around the table having the discussion is almost never possible um, because, you know, it, it's very difficult to get representative um, samples and, and discussion around this kind of thing. There have been some attempts with realistic medicine and citizens' duties to discuss what does realistic medicine mean? And I think that's quite exciting developments mm. like that. But it's, it is still really difficult to have a representative citizen's duty. So I think that there has been quite a lot of work done recently around you know, trying to raise awareness of the fact that where you might previously have assumed this is something that you need to speak to your GP about, actually there are lots of other members of the team who can equally help you with this issue, um, perhaps more appropriately as well, because they may have additional training in it. So you know, within our practice, we have a physiotherapist who is far more skilled at speaking to someone about their chronic back pain or their knee pain or their neck pain than necessarily I am as a GP. We have a a pharmacist who can go into much more detail about medication and and dosette boxes and understanding, you know, potential side effects and how to monitor medicines. And nurse practitioners or, or practice nurses with chronic disease management. And then, you know, out in the community, community pharmacists have this wealth of experience around minor illness and being able to support people with that opticians, all things eye, dentists, all things teeth and mouth. So there has been some attempts, I think, in more recent years and months Mm. to do some public education around that. You know, if you have these issues, these are the people you can speak to equally who will be able to help. And also there are online resources which are really useful too. The NHS Inform website is really useful. But it takes a while, I think, for people to change um, their their behaviour, but also their understanding of where they can get help if it's not necessarily going to be through a conversation with their GP, which is what might have happened in years gone by. And that's just more difficult to achieve now because we don't have the workforce to be able to cope with that demand anymore. And it's better mm-hmm. to be done as part of a team. I'm I'm just thinking uh, when uh, when I tell my friends like oh you know like that that cold you can go you can go to a pharmacy for that and uh, you know and get it sorted out and they they can actually give you sort of not over the counter medicine they're always like what really you know I never knew that and um, you know so it kind of you know makes me think on the one hand like we've still got quite a way to go with that but you know people might actually be receptive to this kind of message. Um, I'm interested to know a bit more about the citizen duties because I've heard I've heard about this. You know, this is like the idea that you, you the government take or you know the the public sector takes a selection of people um, to kind of test out ideas for policies and see what people think. And you know, what have what have those discussions about realistic medicine that you have you been involved in any of those or? Um... No, I haven't. So I, my my. Um reflections on it are probably not as informed as they they would be if it was someone who had been involved in it but I know that the citizens duty was a big part of um, understanding the public response to the realistic medicine movement if you like which kind of started back in 2016 um, and seeking you know what the public's views would be on things like what does shared decision making mean for you what does personalized health care mean for you um, what does kind of reducing um, unnecessary variation and waste mean for you? Um, because it's really important to understand that. So what we understand as doctors about shared decision making may be very different from what patients and people understand as shared decision making. And so mm-hmm. unless we understand that, we can't alter our training, our teaching, our processes, our ways of doing it to make sure that it's as person-centred as it can be. But I think the concept of citizens' duties and other types of public engagement are really important to inform policy that is truly person-centred. And it's hard to do. It is hard to do it well, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and do it to the very best of our ability. 
you know, I think what what you have been doing in in Craig Miller, you know, is kind of like that kind of listening to the public, like on a smaller scale. You know, each time you you you're working in the community or you're you're meeting patients, you know, and and the example you gave about the charity, you know, that that kind of that's for me, that's proof of concept that it works. Um, just to change uh, topic a little, I kind of want to ask you about COVID and. Um, you know, I think now this, the conversations are starting to happen about, well, how can we build um, or how can we get back to the, you know, a, a new normal that's better than what we had before? And I, I'm just thinking, you know, what do you see as the opportunities from COVID? Uh, you know, I know there's been a lot of challenges as well, but, you know, what do we need to work on in order to be more uh, realistic for people? So I think there have been a number of silver linings in all the sadness of COVID. Um, And, you know, some of that is around breaking down the hierarchies that we see within healthcare or within our society and recognising what, you know, what essential jobs are, what key workers are, who they they are, and particularly within social care. Um, A lot of of patients living in poorer areas are often frontline workers, often essential workers, often unable to work from home, um, often don't have access to things like furlough schemes and loans, and so really struggled with a lot of the, you know, the advice that was out there around keeping safe, um, and maybe more likely to be living in accommodation that is more crowded, uh, with less access to green spaces, um, maybe not able to access some of the information that was coming out because it wasn't in their language, um, maybe not able to access the information because it was in a digital format and they had digital poverty. So, you know, there were there were a lot of reasons why the people that we cared for um, had higher levels of COVID in terms of serious illness and, and, and death. And we know that death rates were more than twice as high across the country um, in the most deprived areas from COVID-19, which is, 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 is awful, but mirrors many other diseases that, that relate to social inequality. Um, so I think some of the things that have been silver linings have been breaking down that hierarchy and recognising the crucial roles that people do. Um, and I hope that that will continue beyond COVID. But I think also recognising the really important work that uh, link workers have done within practices to reach out to the socially vulnerable, and make sure that they're still okay. Um, We had um, our care coordinator team who are fantastic phoning the people that they worried about the most in normal times during COVID who they just hadn't seen. Um, And so these were people who they would often see reasonably regularly. They would come into the front desk just for a chat or to to talk about something that was concerning them. Sometimes it was medical, sometimes it was social, sometimes it was related to mental health. But because we had to, um, from the very beginning, move to a digital model of healthcare where everyone had to phone first, and there are pros and cons to that, um, it meant that there were lots of people that we just weren't hearing from and seeing. Um, and that was concerning. And so our care coordinators made a lot of proactive phone calls out to people to ask them how they were. Do you know we're still open? Do you know about the, the government advice about how to keep yourself safe? Do you know how to get a COVID test? Do you know about the financial support that's available? Is everything safe at home? Um, is money okay? And then they would signpost them on to services if they were finding that there was an issue. And for eight out of 10 of the people they spoke to, they made an onward referral, whether it was to citizens advice or a financial advisor or um, a link worker or a mental health nurse or a GP or a practice nurse. So there a lot of people out there with unmet needs that we just weren't hearing from. Mm-hmm. And that work felt really important. And just a tiny little snapshot with a reasonably small amount of people with this massive amount of unmet need. So I feel that that has been a really useful learning thing for us that I would li- like to see, you know, how do we continue that beyond COVID? But I think in other things that have been silver linings is that for some people, they, they like the digital way of working. They find that it's easier to access um, people, you know, they don't have to take time off work. They don't have to travel. Um, I, we, we've we've had a huge throughput um, over the last year of speaking to people largely on the phone or doing things over uh, video consultations and seeing people face to face when we need to. But there is definitely a downside to it, and that for a lot of people, digital healthcare just doesn't work for them for lots of 
complex reasons. Either they don't have the technology or the broadband um, speeds at home or they struggle because English is not their first language or it's a sensitive or a, or a difficult issue to discuss over the phone. Uh, that they might have brought up in a consultation had they come in to see you, possibly not as the reason they phoned in the first place, but the reason they were really there, which is something we see a lot as GPs. So I think that the digital has been both a silver lining and something that we need to be really cautious about moving forward and not think this is a silver bullet for the NHS to move everything much more to online, because I think we risk missing out lots of vulnerable people if we do that. Um, and I think, again, just looking at as we as secondary care reopens, thinking much more innovatively about how do we make sure that um, appointments um, and communication with patients, particularly in light of the big backlog that's going to happen, are, are that our appointment systems are much more patient friendly, um, that people are less likely to DNA because they haven't received letters or they've had an opt-in system that they can't work with. Um, and, you know, that if they call, they can reschedule. So what I think what we're concerned about is that, you know, the, the systems that we operate when within the NHS are quite complicated and not very flexible. Um, and so, you know, often our patients will be referred, but will never ultimately make it to a hospital appointment. And I think we need to understand why that is better and do better as we as we build back the NHS. So there's lots of different things, loads of things I haven't mentioned, but yeah, there's lots of things to consider. How do we get to a better new normal for people? There, there was something that that you said that was kind of making me think that, um, you know, there's there's still a lot we can do to address, you know, so you had people in, in the community, they weren't, um, you know, reaching out and you were reaching out to them and hopefully kind of modifying some of the the risk of of those inequalities you know and around digital you're worried about digi digital is that there's going to be people that are left out because they might not have the the digital literacy to be able to understand how to log on to attend anywhere or, or a video consultation or something like that and i guess what it's making me think about is sometimes i encounter this argument that People kind of think, well, you know, it's it's always the same. No matter how much we do, these inequalities are still going to be there and we're still going to have to deal with them. And nothing that we really do is going to work or, you know, that it's to do with life choices and people make different life choices and there's nothing we can really do about that. Is that an argument you come across in, in your work? And I'm, I'm interested to know what your response to that is. Yeah, so it is. Um and I think that there is very commonly a feeling of overwhelm when you start to talk about health inequalities uh, and people think, oh, you know, that's too big. Of course, it's important, but it does, it's not really our job um, as GPs, for example, to be um, tackling health inequalities. That surely sits with politicians and policymakers and, you know, we need to tackle the social determinants of health and improve housing and improve education and improve employment conditions and improve the welfare system. And of course, all of that is important. But I think what feels important as well is to do what we can as GPs, particularly, um, to mitigate against worsening health inequalities. And we can do that by improving our training, by improving undergraduate training, by improving postgraduate training, and by improving ongoing CPD around what are some of the practical things that you can do to tackle health inequalities within general practice so that people have a better understanding of what it means and what they can do? Um, but I also think that often um, it's a case of articulating what has an evidence base, what has been tried and tested before, what seems to work well, um, sharing examples of good practice and influencing policy development if you've got the opportunity to do that because of the roles that you happen to be in. So, for example, in general practice, we know through the work of the deep end that if you have um, financial inclusion workers in your practice, if you have mental health workers in your practice, if you have community link workers in your practice, addictions workers in your practice, longer appointments for people with the most complex health and social care needs and protected time to come together to have those discussions, that health outcomes improve. And none of that is that surprising, but to have funded pilots that have been evaluated to show that makes a difference. 
there's an evidence base for that in general practice. So we need to upscale that and spread it out much more widely and not just have it as short, short-term funded pilots. And I think, again, we need to have much more emphasis on um, on, on training so that people feel more, um, I guess, equipped to deal with the challenges of working in more deprived areas. And some of that is about having a knowledge base around what types of conditions are likely to present and how do you how do you manage them, the sort of clinical aspects of it. But a lot of it is also around what are the what is the emotional labour of working in areas of high deprivation and how do you recognise when you are becoming burnt out or you're becoming intolerant or you're losing compassion mm-hmm. because there's no facility there to support practitioners to do this really quite difficult and emotionally challenging work. Um, and I'm really interested in, in the concept of reflective practice where you have a protected space with your team or, or alone uh, to speak to someone who's skilled and being able to unpick what are the difficult dynamics and consultations that can create um, emotional labour for people working in more deprived areas that if you don't understand what is going on, you just start to feel very um, disillusioned and very hopeless and very mm. sabotaged um, and you don't feel able to continue. So often the people that we're caring for in more deprived areas have had significant adversity in childhood um, and, they, and they often struggle to trust people and to accept care because that's never been their experience um, in life. So when you come in as a kind of young, fresh-faced GP wanting to give lots of care because that's what you've been trained to do, it's very confusing when that dynamic very quickly becomes dysfunctional and and the patient that you're trying to help gets angry with you or says, that's not going to help, that's been tried, nothing helps me, no one helps me. Um, and you think, I don't understand what's going on here because we have nothing in our training that recognises you know, the psychodynamics of adversity and how that plays out in a consulting room. Mental health have much more supportive structures around this to allow them to understand it and feel supported and and retain compassionate practice. But in medicine, we don't. And so I think that Mm. there is a real uh, need to recognise that this is a particular issue in more deprived areas and that it would be fantastic to see recognition of that and support for more reflective practice to allow practitioners to keep going in this very emotionally charged often environment and and give them coping strategies and skills to understand what's going on and how do you cope with that and how do you develop your own resilience around that so you can keep going. I'm wondering if the the deep end group kind of plays into that kind of sharing sharing experience and whether you see you know as a result of the deep end group like practice being shared much more widely you know the stuff that works gets mm-hmm. rolled out and the stuff that doesn't work you know you can say oh well we'll try this and it didn't work yeah um you know as, as the as chair of the deep end group you know what are you what are your priorities going to be going forward so i think that's a really good question and i think that the answer to that is is yes, the work of the Deep End Group is really useful to um to be able to provide an evidence base and share practice. Um, and there have been lots of Deep End Groups established now throughout the UK, in Ireland and beyond, in other parts of the world. Um, and there's an international Deep End Group now that's uh, chaired by Graham Watt, who was the founding member of the Deep End Group in Scotland. With that intense, with that explicit purpose, which is to bring people together um, to learn, to share practice, um, to create kind of community of frontline practice, if you like, because so many of the of the so much of the learning is common to um, to all practices um, working in in deep end areas. But I think, as well, one of my priorities is how do we move from a, a situation where we have short term funded pilots that show that things improve to something that feels more sustainable in the long term um, to funding that is that is more long term and more linked directly to deprivation. And one of the groups that I'm sitting on at the moment, which is a Scottish government group, the Short Life Working Group on Health Inequality, and it's got a kind of primary care uh, remit, is to bring to that group, here are some examples of what works. How can we make this happen? Um, how can we fund this? How can we match it? Um, um, and how can we sort of move forward with it? Um, and then there are, I guess, another key area for us at the moment, because it's very topical, is um, around COVID vaccination 
And how do we ensure that as we roll out the vaccine, we are flexible and innovative and proactive in getting to the hard to reach groups? So that would be groups living in areas of higher deprivation and BAME communities um, who've got traditionally low uptake um, and they are also very high risk from COVID. So we need to be thinking, I think, uh, as a society, how we how we make sure that, that those groups are protected early on in the vaccine rollout. So we're going to be hosting a, a virtual roundtable discussion on that in the coming weeks, just to come up with some actions on how we how we achieve that. What are some practical things that we can do based on previous learning and sharing across the country. So that feels, it feels both exciting and important, which is always a nice combination. Yeah. Well, I, I wish you all the best for that. And it sounds like quite exciting uh, work that you're going to be doing, trying to scale that up. Um, I, I kind of wanted to come back to this issue of burnout because I know this is something which is extremely topical amongst junior doctors and and GPs and there's there's a lot of people leaving the profession because of that and COVID has kind of been the last straw and uh, part of me kind of thinks you know that's horrific that that's even happening you know these are people who have studied medicine for you know five or six years and really want to uh, you know really dedicated to their jobs who just are saying oh, I can't can't do it anymore I can't face going to work um is there anything that that you've seen that kind of works for for that problem? And you know, I'm just wondering if anyone's listening to this uh, podcast and they're wanting to get um, help, uh, where should they look? So, I think practitioner well-being and avoiding burnout is something that I've been really interested in for a long time, um, because I think when you start to burn out. Um, it's not a nice feeling. It's 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 it, you know you start to lose enjoyment in your job. You you stop caring about the people that you're you want to be caring for, and you you start to lose your compassion because because you're not in a good place yourself. And so it's important not just for individuals in terms of um, maintaining their own health, but it's also important on a much bigger level for our healthcare system. So if you have a healthcare system that is that is um, staffed by people who are burnt out, patients will not have good experiences and care will be less safe because mistakes are more likely mm. to be made and the workforce will slowly be eroded because people are less likely to stay. Um, so there are lots of reasons why why burnout and staff wellbeing is important. That's not just about feeling better. Um, it's about providing mm. safe and sustainable services that are high quality, that, that people feel cared for within. Um, and I think COVID has been a real stress test um, of an already stressed system. Um, and there have been lots and lots of, um, of, of energy and attempts made to try and create specific resources around improving staff well-being, whether in secondary care, it's around having you know, dedicated staff room areas or access to food, um, you know, helplines that people can utilise, access to psychology services within boards. And I think all of those things are enormously important. Um, but I think probably the main things that impact on burnout in terms of, of, of clinicians is if they feel overwhelmed all the time by the levels of their workload, it just becomes impossible to do because people become tired and they start to worry that they're not doing the job well and they start to make mistakes. So the workload issues are really important to address as a kind of underlying driver for burnout. Workload has to feel safe and manageable. And that comes back to our earlier discussions about how do we prioritise what is really needed on the basis of need, not necessarily on expectation. But I think the other thing that really influences burnout is whether people feel valued, whether they feel valued by colleagues, whether they feel valued by patients, whether they feel valued by the system that employs them or that they work within and um, so relationships become really important as part of that. And I think what has been difficult over the last year is is the disconnection that we've all felt um, in life with our own friends and family, you know, with lockdown, but also with colleagues um, and with patients, mm. because we've been at work, but we've been at a very different kind of work. We've been wearing masks when we meet with our teams. Um, so you can't see each other's faces. You can't get a sense on how people are doing. You meet with patients over the phone. You don't get that sense of connection with patients. 
And so it just creates that low level anxiety, uncertainty, dissatisfaction with the work that we're doing and the teams that we're working within. So I think, you know, we kind of have to go the extra mile to make sure that we combat that. Um, there is a national helpline for NHS staff. I, I haven't used it myself, but I know there is one and I know it's on the promise.scot website, which also has a number of uh, resources for staff well-being as well. Um, and I know that, you know, the BMA have good um, resources for staff well-being too, but but I don't know if they are solely the answer um, because I think that so much of um, of what will prevent burnout in the in the kind of months and years to come is the opportunity to come together to talk about what's happened over the last year and to be able to take annual leave and get a break from it, to feel like we're not being criticised um, unnecessarily in the media or um, because of unrealistic expectations around how quickly the NHS is going to ramp back up. Um, and I think, you know, just being kind and caring for each other is going to be really important because we're all quite tired now and quite stressed. So I don't think that's, it's not, it's not an answer. Um, but there are lots of things that I think we need to just be really careful around as we as we start to remobilise and talk of recovery, because our workforce is pretty universally exhausted. Um, and what tends to happen as, um, as people get more stressed is we start to work more in silos and we're not so good at working together. So I think it's also really important that we continue to build on and actively nourish relationships between hospitals and general practice and primary care. And we don't let that start to disintegrate and become unhealthy again. Because one of the great things during COVID was that coming together of, of primary and secondary care to think, how can we work together to, to get out of this? And so we don't want to mm. see there being a competitive or unhelpful dynamic between primary and secondary care. It doesn't serve anyone well. Nobody feels good in that situation. So I think mechanisms to support those relationships feel really important as well. Mm -hmm. And um, just on that last point you made about primary secondary care coming together, do you think that infrastructure's part of that you know do you think it's about that having a shared IT system you know I think a lot of people listening to the podcast might not realize that you know if you're in uh, getting seen in hospital you're the doctor seeing you in hospital doesn't have immediate access to all of your GP records it's not part of the same computer system it has to be a phone call or or an email sending notes through um, you know is, is that something which we have an opportunity to work on now as well yeah, absolutely, Zach. I mean, that I've been very interested in building interfaces of care for probably the last seven years. <laughs> um, and I would agree completely that there are, we don't have a system that supports necessarily good interface working. We don't have IT systems that are that speak to each other, um, that share data easily. Um, so we've got a separate GP system, a separate out of hours system and a separate secondary care system. Um, and, you know, there's much more scope for being able to share relevant parts of the record so that patient care is more seamless and communication is better. But we've also got opportunities, I think, you know, particularly as we're looking at um, how do we reopen more secondary care services and how do we try and you know, minimise unnecessary referral into secondary care while secondary care is recovering. I think there's massive scope to be looking at, you know, clinical decision support pathways so dedicated email systems dedicated phone lines for access to secondary care colleagues to discuss patients that are quite complicated that we don't necessarily want to have to refer in but we would like to be able to keep out in the community and manage more in the community than we currently are necessarily able to do and having rapid access to colleagues in secondary care to have those kind of discussions would be just enormously helpful for patients for consultants I'm sure for GPs um, so looking at how we can embed those kind of systems in every specialty in every health board would be really useful. There are some um, dedicated email advice lines in some specialties in some health board areas, but it's certainly not universal. And where they do exist, they're really appreciated. But I think the other forums that we need to think about are, I would love to see um, in every health board um, a, an interface group that is funded and supported that has both consultants um, or hospital doctors and GPs sitting on it with an interest in improving the interfaces of care, sharing learning when things go wrong, sense checking, 
new processes before they're rolled out to think about what might be the impact mm. on other parts of the service if we do this. Um, looking at how communications can be jointly put out to the wider profession on how we work together better and communicate more effectively. So having dedicated interface groups is really important. And I think more opportunities for shared learning events as well, which is largely gone uh, just because of the workload pressures of the last few years. But when you get people coming together, learning together, talking together, problem solving together, and you start to improve relationships, everything else improves because the desire to make things better um, is, is higher. So I think it's, it's, it's about creating the conditions to make sure that relationships um, can, can be functional and can improve and be healthy. Um, and some of that will be through work shadowing. Some of it will be through having, you know, dedicated forums for those kind of discussions and IT systems that speak to each other and make it easy for us to do the job well. Mm. Well, it's been absolutely fabulous uh, talking to you, Carrie. Uh, just before we, we finish, I want to kind of uh, ask, ask you just a couple of questions um, about, you know, if there's anyone that's been listening to this podcast and they want to get involved in the kind of work that you're doing and, you know, you've been involved in some leadership positions to do with, uh, you know, the general practice and trying to address health inequalities. I mean, what career advice would you give people that are wanting to get more into that? There's probably a few different routes that people can get involved in leadership. Um, so one of them would be, I guess, getting involved with your local college faculty um, and and getting to know what work is going on locally in your area, but also at a national level. So that would be the RCGP if you're a GP, but equally all other colleges if there's other um, healthcare professionals listening um, so getting involved with your kind of professional body at a local level and finding out how you can get um, into leadership positions there. You can get involved through the BMA as well. So um, getting involved in kind of local medical politics is often a good way um, into leadership positions. So joining your local LMC um, and getting involved in the work of the BMA is a good way. Um, there are fellowship opportunities often post-training um, where you're given a kind of protected space I like to if you like to develop um, more of your professional interests often it involves a further postgraduate study or taking on teaching responsibilities or, or, or running projects and developing leadership skills so often there will be uh, fellowship opportunities in your local health board area so it's worth looking into that as well um, and then the work of the, the deep end um, you know I think having a look on our website which is on um, the, the Glasgow University site, that's where it's hosted. And just having a look to see if that's something that feels like you would be interested in, you can contact us through that site. We're on Twitter, at DeepNGP, and you can follow us and see what's happening there as well. So there's lots of um, ways of getting involved. And I know that lots of medical schools as well have set up um, societies at an undergraduate level to get involved in the work of, of inclusion health, uh, too, if you're specifically interested in that. So there's lots of opportunities, but I think just speak to people, speak to folk when you're on placement, ask them, you know, what other stuff have you done? Is there, is there, particularly if they've done kind of portfolio jobs and they've done different things, um, I think just asking lots of questions and being open to opportunities when they come your way. And it's, mm. it's surprising how many doors will open, which is exciting. Well, I'll make sure to link uh, all of those, um, the websites that you suggested, I'll put them in the description. Um, and my, my very last question is, uh, is there a book which you'd recommend to our listeners, something that's, you know, important uh, that maybe influenced you or something that you think people should read? I really like, and in fact, I have it on my desk. So um, I really like um, a book called Intelligent Kindness, um, Reforming the Culture of Healthcare. Um, I read it many years ago now. I've probably read it two or three times in total. Um, it's by Ballot and Campling. Um, but for me, it was a really powerful mixture of presenting the evidence for why kindness and compassion really matters in healthcare, not just because it makes people feel better, but because it improves outcomes for patients and it improves practitioner well-being and also narrative. So it combined the evidence base and the narrative. And I have used that book so many times when I've tried to argue the case for better interface working, for supporting practitioner well-being, for addressing health inequalities. So um, so I think it's a really 
good book, a must have for the undergraduate and postgraduate curriculum if you've not come across it. And it's really easy to read as well. I read it actually when I was on holiday, <laughs> when you could do these things lying by the side of a pool. So there you go. <laughs> and on that note, um, Carrie, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. And uh, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Zach. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. If you like the podcast, the best way to support it at this stage is to tell your friends about it and share it on social media. You can use the hashtag #HealthyDiscussions or my Twitter handle at MontereyZach to tell me your thoughts about this episode. In the description, you'll find more about our guests' work and their book recommendations. Thanks to Health Education England Northeast, Health Education England Southwest, and Medics Academy for supporting this episode. All of us at the Healthcare Leadership Academy are grateful for their support.